It's uh, hard to summarize uh, nine chapters and hundreds of stories that we've talked about in the last uh, uh, almost seven months, uh, but I, I just couldn't get beyond that phrase. And I don't know if that's specifically for someone here uh, where you're struggling to really think that Jesus can do much of anything in your life. Um, and I just wanted you to know he can and he wants to. Um, if you have a Bible, flip open to Acts chapter 10. Uh, we're going to break Acts chapter 10 up into a few different parts over the next few weeks. So this morning, it's going to be short and sweet. Um, well, it'll be short. Hopefully, it will be sweet as well. Uh, but this is the longest narrative in all of Acts. Uh, this story that we're going to start this morning is the longest story, uh, one story <clears throat> in all of Acts. It's 66 verses. It spills over into Acts chapter 11. Uh, and I came across uh, R.C. Sproul as a pastor theologian, and he said this specifically about Acts chapter 10. He said, Acts 10 is one of the most important chapters of the entire book of Acts. Okay? There's 28 chapters. He's saying Acts 10 is one of the most important chapters in the entire book of Acts, if not the most important chapter. Actually, it is one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament because it brings to our attention the extremely important moment in redemptive history, a time of transition from the old way of doing things to a new period of God's redemptive activity. So in Acts chapter 10, something significant happens. There's a significant switch. Uh, so my question is, why is the story in Acts chapter 10 so crucial, so important? And my answer is we see the message of the gospel, that is gospel meaning man can have a relationship with God, can have peace with God, not only for the Jews, but now for the Gentiles. And by the way, if you are not Jewish, uh, you're a Gentile. Uh, so there might be some people from a Jewish background here today, but when we, you hear the word Gentile, uh, that's anyone who is not uh, of Jewish descent, Jewish origin. And what happens in Acts chapter 10 is the gospel goes now not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. So when Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, it's starting to go now in Acts chapter 10 to the ends of the earth. So this is not an overstatement. This is not an exaggeration. When I say what happened here in Acts chapter 10, the reason that you and I are even sitting in this church, and I don't mean just Genesis, but part of the family of God, the body of Christ, is because of a story that took place at a man named Cornelius' home. So this is a really significant turning point uh, in God's redemptive history. So for thousands of years, Gentiles were considered outside of being able to know God. Because the people who knew God, who had a relationship with God, who walked with God, were the Jews. But now in Acts chapter 10, we see it's not the case anymore. Now everyone can know God. Everyone can have a relationship with God. So again, I'm in Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read eight verses, starting at uh, verse 1. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army uh, officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor. He prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Now, if you haven't been hanging out in Acts, this is almost like the norm. 
Like when you hear an angel of God appear to him, or someone had a dream or a vision, this might seem really awkward or off or weird to us, but in the story of Acts, the Spirit of God was moving in such incredible ways that you can read this and you're like, yeah, that's just, that's what was happening. The angel uh, Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? Uh, He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier and one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened, and he sent them off to Joppa. That's part one of this story. God gets the attention of a man named Cornelius. Next week, we're going to look at God getting the attention of a man named Simon Peter. And then the week after, we're going to look at what happened when Simon and Cornelius met. Uh, Again, it's a really long story, but this morning, I wanted to focus on this man, Cornelius. If you were listening to the story, you caught four details. He's a guy who lived in Caesarea. If you don't know uh, too much about the geography, that was the capital of the Roman province of Judah, uh, often referred to as the showpiece for Roman culture. Uh, this area, this province in Caesarea, was predominantly just Gentiles. There were Jews who lived in this area, but predominantly Gentiles, and Gentiles who worshipped Roman gods, Roman goddesses, Greek deities, and the like. Uh, he lived in Caesarea. He was a centurion, which is a Roman... So here's the background on who he is. A Roman legion consists of 6,000 fighting men, fighting soldiers... Each legion, so one legion's got 6,000, each legion would be broken down into 10 cohorts, and a cohort had 600, okay? Each uh, of the cohorts of 600 men, a centurion was one who commanded 100 of these men. So Cornelius was one of 100 other centurions. Uh, Now, that might not sound like that high of a role, uh, but this was a pretty prestigious thing to be a one who was in charge of 100, part of a group of 60 uh, that was part of a legion of 6,000. That's uh, uh, what a centurion was. It says also he was devout, God-fearing man, meaning he did not worship the gods and goddesses of Rome. And despite being a Gentile in Rome, Cornelius, along with his whole household, said, no, we're going to we're going to worship God. Uh, we're not going to bow our knee to these fake, made-up, man-made goddesses and gods and deities uh, that the Romans and Greeks worshipped. And then the last thing you learn about him, he's a generous. He gave to the poor and he prayed regularly. This is a guy, who, he's pretty pious. Uh, he's a religious person. All right, so if that's the only thing that you know about Cornelius so far, and my question would be, what do you think of him? Wouldn't most of you be like, it seems like a pretty sweet guy. Like, it seems like a really nice, nice guy. You know, seems like he's a family man. Seems like he takes care of things. It seems like he's a warrior. It says he was a devout man. He prayed regularly. He gave things to the poor. He was a generous guy. So it's hard not to look at this guy Cornelius just in this short story here and say, I don't know, seems like a pretty, pretty good guy. Uh, and as we go through the story of Acts 10 in these next few weeks, what we're going to see is this story is not just about the gospel or salvation coming to the Gentiles. 
Uh, but what we're going to see is salvation comes to this guy, Cornelius. Now, I think the most challenging aspect of this story is simply this. From all outward appearances, Cornelius knew about God. It said he feared God. And he did godly things, meaning he gave to the poor, he prayed, but he still did not know God. And I think this is the most challenging aspect of this story. From all outward appearances, it seemed like this guy knew God. It seemed like he, he knew God enough to say, well, I'm going to pray and I'm going to give things to the poor. But one of the things that we're going to see as we progress in this story uh, is that you can do a lot of things that have the appearance of knowing God and doing godly things and do all of those things and still not actually have a relationship with God. To be honest, I think one of the hardest things for all of us to grasp is that we can know about God and actually do godly things and still not know God. We can have the appearance of being very devout, being a, a good person, a moral person, a religious person. All outward appearances, you'd be like, that guy knows God. That woman knows God. Just look at how they live. Look at what they do. And I think one of the most challenging things for us uh, to wrestle with, that Scripture challenges us to wrestle with, is you can know about God, but not actually know God. And this is what we're going to find with Cornelius. Uh, Donald Gray uh, Barnhouse is theologian, pastor, teacher. Uh, and when he was talking about this passage, he said this, There are those who are attached to form, ceremony, liturgy, religious precepts and practices, and all the attitudes that go with such attachment, and who are yet alien to the grace of God. There's people who, they have appearance, they look like they know God. And he goes on and says, but yet who are alien to the grace of God. They have ritual without redemption, works without worship, form of service without the fear of God in its proper sense, and thus they come under the condemnation of God. Cornelius, in these few verses, he is to me the ultimate picture of a good man. He's a good man. And from all outward appearances, he's a man who knew about God. But as, again, as we go through this story, there is a difference of knowing about God and doing godly things and actually having a relationship with God. This is the challenge of this story. This part of the story is there are those who are religious and there are those who have a relationship. And uh, the two things that I would share with you, what I learned from these eight verses uh, is simply this, and I'm going to do these very quick. Uh, the number one first thing that I would pass along to encourage you to write this down, God loves religious people enough to tell them that religion is not enough. God loves religious people enough to tell them that religion is not enough. Again, if you looked at the story of Cornelius, uh, from all outward appearances, uh, this is a guy who was doing godly things. It even says that he was, his offerings was received by God. And again, what we are going to be confronted with and challenged with is there's a difference between appearance and actually having a relationship. Now, as I really wrestle with this passage, 
Imagine if God would have allowed Cornelius just to carry on thinking that fearing God and doing godly things was what actually makes man right with God, only to get to the end of his life and to realize, man, you missed the point. Like, wouldn't there be something in you that said, oh God, that would be cruel. How could you allow someone to spend their entire life thinking that they know about you and are doing godly things only to get to the end of their life and realize they didn't actually know you. They didn't actually have a relationship with you. God loves religious people enough to tell them that religion is not enough. I think one of the more uh, challenging passages in scriptures to me is uh, when Jesus finishes up his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and he gets to the very end, and he says this in uh, Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, well, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? And in your name, didn't we perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Oh, away, away from me. Can you imagine if that was you? And you get there and you're like, but I did this in your name. I did this in your name. I, I, I went to church. I read my Bible. I prayed. I did all of these things in your name only to get to the end of your life and hear God speak to you, say, I didn't know you. And what I want us to catch, and I, I, I know this might, I, I'm okay with this, to feel heavy. Because there is a difference in knowing about God and actually knowing and having a relationship with God. Cornelius, he knew about God. But it wasn't until he met Jesus where he had a relationship with God. Um, why? Is it so hard for us to accept that knowing God, being in right relationship with God, is just not about what we do for him and our good deeds? Like, why is it so difficult for us to comprehend that having a relationship with God has nothing to do with what I've done? And it has everything to do with what God has done for me. Why is that so difficult for us? And I just, I only have one word, and the answer would just be grace. It is so hard for us to receive grace. And what's really sick about this is there are people like, well, I just, I can't receive grace, and it has the appearance of actually being humble. Like, I just can't take that. Like, you know, that's too generous, that's too kind, that's too whatever. And it has the mask, the appearance of being very humble. But behind that mask, if you take it off, is just pride. I don't want to receive anything that I haven't earned because I want, to, I, want to, I want to be able to get there and say, well, look what I did. I earned that. I did that. I achieved that. And we have such a difficult time just receiving grace because we're people, we like to take credit. We like to take credit. And in God's economy, uh, I can't take credit. I, there's nothing that I could do and say, well, God, well, look what I've done. God, Michael, I, you were doing those things, but I didn't know you. Charles Spurgeon um, said it very well when he said, grace puts his 
its hand on the boasting mouth, and he shuts it once for all. Because we are a people who like to boast. We're people who like to impress others and hopefully impress God with, well, God, look at my life. Like, look what I'm doing. Look at all these good things. And what I love about what Spurgeon said is, grace, it shuts you up. It quiets you. Because in the face of grace, there's just absolutely nothing to be said except thank you. Ephesians, Paul uh, later would write, and he, he says this. He makes it very clear in Ephesians 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. And when we're talking about salvation, we're talking about a relationship with God for eternity. And I just love the clarity of this. Salvation's not a reward for the good things that we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For me personally, what uh, I feel like what grace has done in my life is it's actually uh, allowing me to enjoy God. Because uh, what makes grace so beautiful is that I can begin enjoying walking with God rather than feeling like I'm working for God. I spent so much of my life thinking, God's got to be impressed with this. He's got to be impressed with how much I read my Bible, how much I pray, how much I talk about. He's like, got to look at me and smile and be like, man, that Davis, he's like five stars. Now, I never said that, but I thought that. Just being honest with you, I thought that. Until finally grace got a hold of me and said, shut up, Michael. You've got nothing to boast about. And what was so amazing was I'm like, well, now I can just enjoy God. I can just enjoy having a relationship with him and not feeling like I got to work for him in hopes that I can gain his attention. The other thing that grace has done for me is it's allowed me just to have rest and peace because my relationship is not just based on what I do or don't do. And so I can rest easy. I can have peace and not constantly be in fear of like, did I do enough? I got to try harder. I got to do more. And this morning, I just, it's about grace. It's it's not about being Cornelius who had from all outward appearances, he he knew God. But he didn't have a relationship with God. I wanted to ask, I think, a pretty challenging question. But in today's culture, Who are the ones in most danger of trusting the religion to save them? Who are the ones that are most in danger of looking to the religion, meaning just their piety, their devoutness, um, to actually get them to be right with God? Now, if your answer uh, is, say, those in the Catholic Church, if you thought that, if your answer was those uh, maybe just in like a fundamentalist church, like it's just a highly legalistic church uh, that focuses on rules and don't wear this and don't say this and don't drink that um, or don't watch this, um, you'd be wrong. And I'm going to guess if we're just honest, uh, uh, probably those two groups came into our mind when the question was asked, who is most in danger of trusting the religion to save them, and really the right answer is the one who is in greatest danger of trusting the religion to save them is a person that you see every single day in the mirror. It's not someone else, it's you. 
it's me. Question, as you grow closer to God, are you becoming more impressed with God or more impressed with yourself? I was becoming pretty impressed with myself, to be honest with you. Until God gave me an accurate picture of what I actually look like and what my good works were considered in his eyes. Until God really woke me up uh, and said, Michael, you are just a sinner. You are a sinner who is in desperate need of grace. You need to repent of being religious and pious and devout and wanting the appearance for everyone else that you look great and are super spiritual. You need to repent of that. So the one who was in most danger in my life was not someone outside my life, not someone from a different denomination or someone from a different church background or upbringing, but the person that was most in danger of missing it was Michael. And I'm thankful that God woke me up to this amazing truth that he loves religious people enough to tell them that religion is absolutely not enough. So I really want you to wrestle with this question um, before I move on to the second point, uh, which is this. Is your relationship with God based upon what you're doing for God, your good works, your being pious, your being devout, you being a Cornelius, or is it based solely on what Jesus has done for you? And I know most of us would want to say, well, it's totally about Jesus. And before you say that, I just want you to check your heart. That's all. I just want you to examine yourself. Is your relationship this morning with God based upon what you are doing for God? Or is it based solely, completely, absolutely, uh, 100% on what God has done for you in Jesus? Maybe another question to help highlight or draw out an answer would be, is the outward giving expression to what is happening inward, or is the outward just becoming a show because there's no inward transformation taking place? So is what's happening on the outside of you actually just uh, a result of inward transformation taking place, or is the outward just really just becoming a show? Scripture makes crystal clear in so many ways in different places, and I'd encourage you to write these three verses down because I'd invite you to spend some time with later, is that you can, God wants to have a relationship with you, but there's only one way to have a relationship with Him. And it it's, it's always comes back to, do you know the Son? Do you have the Son? Not, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you say this? Did you go here? It's just a simple question of, do you have the Son? First John says this, this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Who does, whoever does not have, this, uh, have God's Son does not have life. I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Isn't it incredible how clear God makes it for us? If you have the Son, if you have Jesus, you have life. You have sins forgiven. You have peace with God. You have relationship with God. So if someone said, Michael, do you have, how do you have a relationship with God? I have the son, that's it. But you're like a pastor. Oh yeah, that's just a role that I, I play. I, I have relationship with God because I have the son, that's it. Well, you read your Bible, you do this, you do this. I don't know, I have the son, that's it. 
So is your relationship with God based on what you do or don't do or based because you have the Son? John 3.36, Jesus uh, says this, whoever believes in the Son uh, has eternal, or John says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't, you, you don't have life. John 5, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. If you have the Son, you have life. You've crossed over from death to life. You've crossed over from non-relationship with God, from knowing about God to actually knowing God. So this morning, I just I challenge you with this question. Is your relationship with God based on you being religious? It's, it's, I'm sure when you first heard the story of Cornelius, you're like, man, that guy's walking with God. He knows God. He loves God. And Again, I know you haven't heard the rest of the story yet, and that's coming in, in the next few weeks. Um, but the amazing aspect of this story is Cornelius was a good man. But he was a good man who still didn't have a relationship with, with Jesus. He didn't have the son. And the second thing that I was going to share with you is this. God loves religious people enough to introduce them to those who have a relationship with Jesus. God loves religious people enough the Corneliuses, to introduce people enough to introduce them to those who have a relationship with Jesus. The angel said in Acts 10, verse 5 to Cornelius, now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. Why did Cornelius, God want Cornelius to go get Simon Peter so that Simon Peter could come uh, meet uh, Cornelius? If you know anything about Peter, Peter had a relationship with Jesus. And God wanted Cornelius not to know about him, but to, to know him, to have a relationship with him. And so he says, I, I, I want you to go meet a man named Peter. And I'm going to jump in the story a little bit. We'll get there next week, but I just wanted to give you this preview. When Peter comes and he's like, Cornelius, what am I doing here? And this is how Cornelius retells the story. Verse 30 of uh, chapter 10, Cornelius replied, Four days ago, I was praying in my house about this same time at three o'clock in the afternoon. And suddenly a man uh, with uh, dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. And he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon summon for a man named Simon Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So that's, he's telling Peter, this is what happened. So I sent for you at once, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message that the Lord has given you. And he says to Peter, I don't know why you're here, but I know you have something to tell us. So would you tell us what the message is? And the message that Peter communicates uh, to Cornelius is, Cornelius, this is how you know God. It's through the Son, and let me tell you about Jesus. And the amazing story at the end of Acts chapter 10, just to let the cat out of the bag, is Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius' whole house, and everyone gets baptized, and it's a get-drenched type party. God loves religious people enough to introduce them to those who have a relationship with Jesus.
This morning, what was honestly on my heart was simply this, uh, to ask you a penetrating question of, are you just being religious, Cornelius, or do you actually have a relationship? And I wanted you to know that God loves you enough to have brought you here today to hear someone tell you that he loves you, but your religion is not enough to know him. And he loved you enough to bring you here today so that you would hear someone tell you the message that the way that you and I know God is not through our works, not through our religiosity, not through our piety, not through our devoutness, not through our generosity. It's through knowing Jesus. I prayed this uh, a few minutes ago when I just said, God, there might be some who just thought they were coming to sing some songs, hopefully hear a message that charged them up and sent them off for a great week. And my prayer for you this morning was, God, if there's anyone here, even if it's just one, but if there's more that is looking to the religion and their good works and being impressed by that, thinking that they know you, God, pray that today you would convict them that knowing you comes through faith in your son, Jesus. Two things. God loves religious people enough to tell them that religion is not enough, and God loves religious people enough to introduce them uh, to those who have a relationship with Jesus. Do you know the Son? Do you know the Son? And if you do... Uh, then the good news is you know grace because the only reason you know the Son uh, is because you've received the Son by grace. And if that's you, uh, then you walk differently. You walk differently out of here, not heavy, but light and free and with peace, knowing I can just enjoy God because I don't have to work for God. I get to just love God and uh, receive God's love for me. I can rest and I can have peace. And I really, for those of you who do have the Son, I want you to know as you would go from here today, He can do more. He can do so much more. So for those of you who are Christians, men and women who have the Son, in a few moments we're going to celebrate through song, we're going to celebrate through communion. Uh, And I mean that, I want you to celebrate. I want you to celebrate like you are one who has just received the most incredible thing from God, rescuing you from a life of trying to earn it, deserve it, and merit it, and he's just giving you life in his son. You should sing differently. And what I'd also encourage you with is... Does God want to use you, one who has the Son, to introduce someone who doesn't have the Son that they might know him as well? Peter showed up at Cornelius' house. He said, what am I doing here? You're a Gentile. I'm a Jew. We usually don't play together. And then Peter got it. He was like, oh, I'm here so I can tell you also about having a relationship with God is not through being pious and religious and devout and generous. It's about knowing the Son. So if you're one who has a Son, I want you to know God wants to use you uh, this day, this week, 
to introduce others who don't have the Son, that they would know Him too. I want to just spend a moment uh, praying, and specifically praying, that if there is one, two, ten, more, that you're honestly, and you know, you know that you're just looking to religion to keep you right with God. If that's you, I just I want, I want to invite you to repent of that and be free of that and just say, man, if knowing God, walking with God is just enjoying the Son, receiving the Son, then I want to do that today. 